This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, a special edition of Bloomberg Business Week as Election 2020 uh, continues to drag on, although it does definitely feel a little bit different in terms of the tone over the past 24 hours. I do want to bring in two of my colleagues. Uh, joining us once again, Kevin Cirilli. He is Bloomberg News Chief Washington Correspondent of Bloomberg Radio and TV, host of Bloomberg Sound On. Uh, in uh, on Bloomberg Radio, I should say, and June Grasso back with us, legal analyst and host of Bloomberg Law on Bloomberg Radio on the phone in New York. A couple of headlines I thought was interesting, you guys. First of all, welcome back. Great to <laughs> yes, be here. Great Thank to you be for here. having me. Great I had have... so much fun yesterday. I said, sure, I'll try it out again. You it's know, not, why not? I have to say, it's nothing like news happening in real time. For those of us who are news uh, junkies, like it's <laughs> just the way we love to I do love it. I love the live. I love it. It's, well, and what's interesting, it's, what's interesting too is what we just heard from Nancy. We do expect a primetime speech from Joe Biden tonight. We did see roughly about 40 minutes ago, President Trump saying he's going to pursue this process through every aspect of the law in terms of fighting really the vote and the vote outcome. Uh, That's kind of on my, you know, radar, if you will, if I can start with radar. Um, Kevin, what are you watching? What are you, when you're looking at how things are evolving? I'm excited to talk with uh, Congressman Denver Riggleman, who's Mm going to join us uh, in the next hour or so. Uh, because he's a Republican from Virginia. And here's the thing. He lost his primary, but he's still technically in office. So all of those lawmakers who are about to get out of office, they're always more chatty. (laughs) And we were talking this morning. Not so worried, right? (laughs) No, they're not so worried. And at one o'clock Eastern time, so it just finished, there was a House Republican caucus call where that's where the members air their dirty laundry. (laughs) So we're going to catch up about that call. Do Republicans think that the president still has a viable path? And is that path worth pursuing? Uh, This, of course, is Joe Biden has uh, now surpassed uh, uh, President Trump in votes in Pennsylvania. Nothing's been declared. Right. Uh, But will the other big question on my radar, this is I'll wrap it here, is uh, Will Bi- what will Biden say tonight yeah. in the 8 o'clock Eastern hour? Will he declare victory? Will he not? So those are things that we're going to be carefully listening for this afternoon. And I'm guessing it's going to be longer than the two or three minute conversations that we got from him <laughs> election night and also yesterday. Let me just remind everybody, Biden, Joe Biden has 264 electoral college votes. President Trump has 214. And we know that the number that we're all focusing on, the winning candidate has to have at least 270. So that's where we're coming from. June, you've been watching uh, the legal wrangling. I've heard a lot of uh, about not there, you know, that there's not a coherent strategy. You know, there's been claims of fraud, but there's no really legal justice behind it, um, or le- legal well, basis, I should say. So, what right. what what that's, is still catching your all, attention? Yeah, well, what's catching my attention is you just read a statement that the president issued, saying that he'll pursue all legal paths to fight the quote to pursue this process through every aspect of the law. What does that mean? You know, he's once again saying they're saying they're going to file more lawsuits, but what are the lawsuits going to be about? 
They have to have something. They need some evidence, which they haven't had in any of the lawsuits so far. You know, as we've discussed yesterday, the lawsuit in Michigan and Georgia were dismissed outright by a judge, and now mm -hmm. it's too late to pursue those particular paths. So they filed late. They're filing over process issues that don't involve a lot of ballots. For example, in Pennsylvania, uh, I just heard that um, Senator Casey, and he was quoting the Voter Project, said that Biden will win by 100,000 votes. There are still 124,000 mail-in ballots to be processed and about yeah. 92,000 provisional. That's a huge margin. So, you know, mm -hmm. what can they do in these states that will sue and that will result in a change in the in, in the ballots and the margins of matter. change the yeah. margins that's what they call it as i said the margin of victory it's the tipping point so none of these lawsuits that i've seen with like the one in nevada it's about 10,000 votes we're hoping that you know the that the gap between the two is going to be much wider than that so i am right. curious as to what they could be suing about i can't figure out and i've talked to election law experts and they're all saying well, they don't see it. Well, listening patiently is Bloomberg contributor Rick Davis. He's former Republican strategist, former manager of Senator John McCain's presidential campaign. He understands this process uh, so well. He is also partner at Stone Court Capital. He's in our D.C. studio. Hey, Rick, come on in on our conversation. I heard you talking to Dave, uh, David Weston earlier, and you said we're kind of down to the uh, five-yard you know, five line. Yeah, uh, this is really the end of the campaign. Uh, the counting is almost complete, as you guys pointed out. There is very little left to actually sort through, and you do get to the point where uh, whatever's left actually won't make a material difference in the outcome of the election, and we're almost there. Uh, the ballots left in places like Pennsylvania and Arizona, um, you know, if they continue to break along the way they have, will result in Joe Biden winning both those states and, and potentially others. And so I think we're, we're, we're at a stage now where we can, I think, take a step back and say, um, that um, this is the conclusion of a process. The process has been legitimate. The process mm -hmm. has worked much better than anybody forecasted it would, right? Everybody Agreed. was worried about Russians hacking our system and, you know, creating all kinds of chaos. That didn't happen. Uh, you know, long lines at disenfranchised voters. There were long lines, but everybody got to vote from what we can tell. And so, you know, I think instead of sort of focusing on the negatives associated with sort of the president who sees his future uh, going down the drain, um, focus on the fact that we had this really great experiment in democracy and it worked really well this year, despite everybody's concerns about the opposite. And so that brings up the point that I was talking about before, which is the president said he's going to pursue legal action. And he said that last night. He's talked a lot about the Supreme Court. Do you see any strategy in legal action to come? Do you know of any anything that they're planning? Well, it's it's really the loser's toolkit, right? And unfortunately, I've had <laughs> uh, my own use of the loser's toolkit over my career. And, uh, and you know, it's like if you're behind, break open this box and do whatever the stuff inside tells you to do. And part of that is start suing people. Um, now, we know that Donald Trump's had a history, his entire business career, of of loving litigation and so it doesn't surprise me that he's choosing this route part of it is just to create a holding pattern right slow things down so that you can try to figure out what to do next so we we know that this has you know delayed the process a little bit um, it, a lot of these if not all of them are probably without merit 
Uh, but if you hang around long enough, maybe you find something in the process that you can hang your hat on and make a claim. You can see, uh, like the party chairman, Ronna McDaniel, I mean, like literally almost saying, like, give me another week and I'll come back with evidence. <laughs> um, and so yeah. that's what losers do. I mean, it, it's not the first time and, uh, and it won't be the last time that the courts are used as a way of trying to uh, create a process that, that looks like it wasn't your fault as the candidate for losing the election, right? And, and we know this is a president who is not all about taking responsibility. Um, and so, you know, it, it, regardless of what the outcome is, I, I don't think we have to worry about legal action because as you've pointed out, you actually have to have a crime uh, to have a court case. And, and so far, we haven't seen any crimes. I just have to say that I talked to one legal expert who said that uh, Donald Trump would sue if a doctor hit him on the knee with a rubber mallet. So he's <laughs> expecting, he's an election law expert that's been tracking all these 400 different lawsuits. So they're expecting it, but they don't know where it's coming from. That's right. I mean, look, I mean, Pennsylvania's a great case. Uh, you know, part of his suits uh, are to stop the counting of the ballots that come in after Election Day. Uh, they tried that with the Supreme Court last week. Court didn't really want to hear about it. Uh, I think part of their angle was let's have a vote first and see if it even matters. Uh, well, now it actually may look like it matters. And uh, and so if it depending upon, again, the tipping point, right, if there are more votes for Biden than, than, than ballots that you need to challenge at the end of the process, then what's the point? And I think mm. those courts are not looking to get involved in state election rules. Um, uh, they, they, this is elections are the purview of the state. And so federal courts and the Supreme Court are only going to do that, only going to get involved in the most extreme cases. And the only one that we've really seen uh, related to this is in 2000, you know, and that's when uh, the state literally couldn't actually do a recount. I mean, they just couldn't right. get it done. It was a physical so the Supreme thing, Court right? stepped yeah. in and said, look, all right, you've had your shot. Now we're going to call it quits. Breaking news, Maggie Habermans of the New York Times tweeting out just moments ago, Jared Kushner and a president's uh, campaign reelection manager, Bill Stepien, have tapped David Bossy to lead their various efforts contesting vote tabulations in different Boys. days. Uh, so there's a name uh, that you and I know quite well, Rick. Yeah, and this is following a pattern exactly what uh, happened in 2000 where um, uh, George W. Bush tapped, um, you know, the former chief of staff, the former secretary of state, you know, uh, to, to go down to Florida and uh, James Baker and take control of the legal strategy. Uh, it was as much the political strategy in Florida as it was the legal strategy. Again, slow it down, get everything moving at a snail's pace so that we can pick up any anomalies along the way. You know, and protect whatever but, uh, vote count you think you needed to protect. I mean, Rick, at a certain point, though, I mean, unless the margins are really, 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 really close, I mean, it kind of becomes a moot point, does it not? Well, you're going to have recounts in a bunch of these states, right? So yeah. Nevada, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin are all going to be triggered. I mean, like assuming nothing dramatic happens, um, uh, you're going to have recounts in those states. And so it doesn't hurt to have court cases going on where you could introduce issues that come out of the recount. Um, uh, and so it's all part of this package of the loser's toolkit that I was talking about. I mean, it's okay. all part of a process right. that's pretty well understood by campaigns going in. And, uh, and, and generally speaking, not much comes of it, but it's kind of malpractice if you don't do it. 
Rick, you know what we do in Philly when we when we lose? We eat a cheesesteak. You know what we do when we win? <laughs> we eat a cheesesteak. Cheese so I mean, the, it's always a good time. It's always it's always a good time to eat a cheesesteak. Exactly. I, I think people need to rethink what's in the losers' <laughs> I toolkit. I thought we were going to eat. We were gonna well, eat you know, cheesesteaks <laughs> go bad after a while. I got a question for Rick. Okay, wait. So I was talking to some members of Congress earlier this morning uh, on on background, as they say in the biz, where you can't. You know, they they. They, they're more candid when you can't use their names. But three Republicans I talked to, one said that the president's legal strategy was quote-unquote stupid. The other one said essentially, I don't know what his strategy is, but I don't think he cares about the GOP moving forward. And then the third one said, well, good luck in the media if he's gone because you're not going to have a lot to talk about. I said, all right, you know, okay. But, Rick, Republicans, that's what I'm going to be watching for. Will there be prominent Republicans, whether it's Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, or whether it's people like Susan Collins or Senator Pat Toomey on the Today Show earlier today, a Republican yep. from uh, from PA who said he's uh, you know he's not running for re-election, but he said the president's comments yesterday were quote unquote hard to watch. So, I mean, I'm going to be watching to see what they have uh, to do in a breaking headline story crossing the Bloomberg terminal now. Pennsylvania Republicans file new request with the Supreme Court, so that legal mm. saga is ongoing. But Republicans now are, are going to have to – what they say will matter, Rick. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and we've seen Senate Republicans walking out, talking about transition. Uh, even uh, Lindsey Graham, after going on Hannity last night saying you know, he's going to back the president and gave half a million dollars to his legal defense fund, uh, was out today saying – uh, that uh, he'll take a look at Biden's uh, cabinet secretaries with an open eye. Well, I mean, that's kind of an admission of where this thing is headed. Right. Uh, and so I think you'll see a real mixed bag. Um, you know, the problem that the Republican Party has with Donald Trump is that <clears throat> he's not a party guy, right? I mean, he's right. never done anything within the party. It's all about him. It's a cult of personality. And so he really doesn't care if the Republican Party uh, gets a black eye on his exit process and, and so, unfortunately, for these Republicans who have concerns about the future, they don't have a willing partner in the White House who actually shares those concerns. Rick Davis, former Republican strategist. He's also former manager of uh, Senator John McCain's presidential campaign, partner at Stonecourt Capital. He's with us from our D.C. studio. Hey, Rick, one thing I wanted to ask you, and it's something that the cover story of Bloomberg Business Week uh, magazine gets into, that whatever the outcome, and we know Joe Biden certainly seems to be on a much easier path to the White House right now, even though the race has not yet been called, that if Donald Trump does not get this second term. Does he go away? Does he become a media star? Does he come back and run again in 2024? Uh, really good questions. Nobody has a crystal ball who can see the outcome. Uh, uh, there are a lot of different options. Uh, it, I would say part of the narrative that was going into this election was that, you know, this could spell the end of the Republican Party, right? Mm -hmm. Trump's driving it off a cliff. And, uh, and I think the, the showing by the party was actually pretty impressive. I mean, 68 million votes, that is strong. Uh, and, uh, and wins in some House districts that they uh, picked up. Uh, I don't think there are going to be anything material, but there weren't the blue wave losses that were anticipated. And depending upon what happens in Georgia in January, uh, you know, they may actually retain control of the Senate. I would also say in states like Arizona that was hard fought, lots of money, lots of time spent by the candidates, 
things like the state legislature, which was supposed to change based on this blue wave, is still actually in Republican control today. So um, I, I would say the, the narrative for the Republican Party is one of resilience. Um, whether or not Donald Trump looks at this and says, you know, my second act is 2024, or whether he sees this opportunity to leave the stage, or whether he's dogged by legal problems, uh, there are anticipated suits against him by the Southern District of New York and others uh, that bog him down politically. Um, nobody, I think, can tell right now. But the idea that this is the end of Donald Trump, as we know, may be premature. Well, Mick Mulvaney, as we all know, Mick Mulvaney, the former acting White House chief of staff, and now he's a special envoy in Northern Ireland. He said that Trump is a very high energy 23 24, 74-year-old, and he's likely to be engaged further and that he would be in the 2024 or 2028 election if he were to lose this one. So, my, and also we talked about the uh, Business Week article that mentioned that it would, might also be a way for him to avoid some of these suits if he's still in the political process. So how much do you think that he is going to remain if he loses you know, forefront in the Republican Party, and we're going to see his tweets continually? Well, I think he'll probably continue to tweet. It seems to be something he loves to do. Now, whether anybody pays attention to them or not is going to be the big question, right? I mean, he obviously has a huge uh, follower, you know, tens of millions of people who read his tweets every day. Uh, and the question is how many of those are doing it because they want to see what he's doing rather than actually liking what he's tweeting. Um, but um, I, I can't imagine him going away into obscurity. Uh, and he may see the political process as a way to stay out of jail. Who knows? Um, uh, it's, it, look, he's, he has defied every expectation put on him uh, True. really for his entire life. I mean, you know, uh, uh, talk about a guy who's had a lot of ups and downs. Uh, and, and, and arguably, if anybody says they know what's on his mind, I think they're the ones who have to have their head examined. <laughs> All right, Vic, what happens to the Bush wing of the Republican Party? Because they've been quiet for the last couple of years. Do they make a resurgence? I'm not sure there is a Bush wing of the Republican Party anymore. Don't go to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look at Texas, right? I mean, I, I, arguably I have a Texas lot of family a, in Texas. Texas is a swing state. Uh, George W. Bush played no role whatsoever in this election even though I think a lot of Bush followers would like to have had him speak out. He is in retirement like no other president uh, <laughs> I've ever seen. And, uh, I mean, even Jimmy Carter was outspoken. And he, I, I, is he 100 years old yet? Or he's got to be close. Ooh, and, and so um, uh, I, I think the Republicans have to look and say, you know what, um, the, the, the McCain wing of the Republican Party, the Bush wing of the Republican Party, the Reagan wing of the Republican Romney. Party, the Romney wing of the Republican Party. I mean, all these people have to look at the future and say, you know what, uh, our formulas work some, didn't work some. Uh, the electorate's different now. I mean, the Bush wing of the Republican Party didn't have white rural blue collar males in it. Right. But now uh, it does. So what yeah. are you going to do about that? Um, so I think that, that, that really all these constituencies, and I know them well, I've served with them and, and run against them and been for them, uh, they've got to look at the political landscape that exists now. It is different than it was four years ago. And, and they have to look at the party and say, okay, what's the appropriate leadership and, 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 and qualities that you want and what direction do you want to take it in? Because you are likely, if, if Donald Trump loses, going to have a vacuum. How do you fill that vacuum? You don't go back, you go forward.
Yeah, interesting. Uh, and certainly these things are an evolution. As I said, I've got family in Texas, and I've definitely seen, um, you know, their politics, I think, definitely evolve over the years. Um, Rick, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Bloomberg contributor Rick Davis, former Republican strategist on uh, from, or I should say, our studio in D.C. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser, Kevin Cirilli, and June Grasso. Well, despite a lot of uncertainty following Tuesday's vote, one thing definitely stood out, and that is a record number of GOP women who have been voted into congressional seats. Let's get into it with our own Rebecca Greenfield. She wrote the story. She leads diversity coverage here at Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone, as does uh, Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber. She, he's on the access line in Brooklyn. Jill, let's set it off, uh, set it up with you. I mean, there's obviously we're, we're <laughs> focusing on the outcome, but there are, again, a lot of moving parts to this. Uh, t- tons of other storylines. And, yeah. you know, the, the blue wave, there was so much anticipation of and uh, remains to be determined if, if that will end up eking it out, maybe. But regardless of that, there was something of a red fortress. And the most dramatic part to me was this note that, um, you know, Rebecca hit in her story about the number of GOP women in Congress actually reaching a record. How significant was that, Rebecca? Because, you know, the, the other thing that you say in here is that they had very little GOP official support. Yeah, I would say it was, you know, a mini wave. I don't want to overstate what happened. Um, Republican women will have 32 members heading to Congress, at least, um, as of talking to you right now. I also want to note that there are a record number of women heading to Congress this year, which I think was a huge storyline in the midterm, um, but nobody seems to be talking about now. So there is a record number of women of both parties, like together, the parties. Um, But, yeah, the GOP uh, tends to just have much less gender diversity than the Democrats do. Um, And so their record-breaking number is much smaller, but they did break the record this cycle, and I do think that is notable. And when when you look at it, uh, Becca, what was the the elements of uh, that surprised you the most about uh, the races that they ended up winning in? Yeah, so they were expected to increase their numbers. Like you said, they had a really big, they were at a pretty low number going into this election, so they were expected to add to their numbers. Um, so that wasn't the surprise that that was going to happen. But the thing that was surprising is that there were some wins in some swing districts that were expected to or predicted to or more likely to go to Democrats that these women did end up winning. And so there was Maria Salazar in Florida. There was a woman named Lauren Bobert for Bobert in Colorado, um, who won, and there were some some of these races that um, weren't expected to win. That women ended up did pulling, did end up getting for the GOP, um, showing that these women were strong candidates. Rebecca, I'm wondering how much there was of party leaders, or for example, in the Democrats, you have Emily, Emily's list picking candidates and supporting them. Was there any kind of support or any kind of outreach from party leaders to Republican women to get them to run? Yeah, so this is a a big difference between the two parties is that the Republicans don't like to play in primaries, and that means that they aren't doing what Democrats are doing, which is making a concerted effort to get a certain type of candidate, like a woman, on the ticket. And I think that does really show in the numbers differences. Even though Democrats aren't likely to beat their record, they're at maybe they will meet it, maybe they will beat it, but probably not likely. They still have three times the number of women heading to Congress. And that's because they do have this really well-funded, well-oiled 
machine that has Emily's List, which raises a ton of money, and they, they make a concerted effort to do it. Republican Party just doesn't do that. Um, but there was a little bit of a shift in the party. Um, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who's from uh, New York, said that she wanted to make an effort this time around because there was such a poor showing last time. And so she has her own packet. You know, it was much smaller than Emily's was, but at least 12 of the women that she supported did win their races this cycle. Wow. Showing that with a little effort, you can really make a difference and get some good candidates on the ticket. Rebecca, in my neck of the woods, Elise Stefanik is, is seen as a rising Republican star. Uh, and we should also note, I mean, people like Kellyanne Conway, uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn, I mean, they were also behind the scenes really pushing to drive to drive this uh, home. Rebecca, great story in uh, Bloomberg Business Week. And, and let me follow up on this. I mean, when you play it forward into 2024 a little bit, you can't talk about the crop, uh, the cast of characters on both sides. Uh, if you know, there's if well, we we won't go into hypotheticals. So let's just stick with Republicans. <laughs> Nikki Haley, Marsha Blackburn. Um, you know, there's there's you know the governor of North Dakota, Christy Noem, uh, is. I, I think that there's a there's many uh, women in the Republican Party right now that, quite honestly, uh, Ronna Romney McDaniel, the chairwoman of the RNC, they're excited about. Yeah, we wrote about this um, in Doesn't Speak in September that there was a record right, number of right. women, Republican women, who ran for office this year too. Um, and there are they are a different kind of Republican woman that we maybe stereotype are used to seeing. They're um, more right wing, more the party of Trump. I mean, it's the direction the party is going, and a lot of the people that you named are definitely in that image. Becca, I wanted to uh, uh, actually ask about the other party, the the Dems, and sort of like, you know, if, if the Republicans made up this ground, what did it look like on uh, the Democrats' side for, for women? Yeah, so as I meant, it looks like right now there will have be 102 uh, Democratic women heading to Congress in January. That number, you know, will probably change. Um, so they're not doing poorly. Their record was 106. It's not like a big, huge loss for them. I think they did, you know, some of these races were women against women. So Maria Salazar beat another woman. Um, so it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. I think that yeah. that is, is the lesson here for sure. What did um, you, and that there are lots of strong women. I mean, you know, Rebecca, how do you look at this race overall? And I also think about, we were discussing earlier about the significance of Kamala Harris. You know, a woman of color, a woman, just a woman, you know, being vice president. Like the significance of that and maybe how that helps to really, you know, push the numbers when it comes to the political landscape. Yeah, in the end, the president, you know, the race definitely didn't have the gender dynamic at, at the presidential level that we saw last time. Um, I think at the level, it's, I think, important for us to have a more representative democracy. A lot of scholars will say that, too. I, I don't think that's a controversial statement, but I think gains here are good for representation, for sure. Um, and, yeah, this will, if Biden wins, it will be a huge milestone for women in office. Yeah, really, really, really significant, uh, no doubt about it. All right, hey, listen, thank you so much. Always appreciate when we get some time with Rebecca. Rebecca Greenfield, she wrote this story. Check it out. It's in the magazine. It's online and on the Bloomberg. She leads diversity coverage here at Bloomberg. Uh, joining us on the phone, uh, also with Bloomberg Business Week editor, Jill Weber. Great issue, so be sure to check it out. A lot of uh, stories when it comes to the election. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Master, along with June Grosso and Kevin Cirilli. For those of you listening in New York, D.C., and San Francisco, 
know, watching on YouTube, Bloomberg Business Week, we're going to continue. Lots to come. If you're listening on Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, Bay State Business is coming up next. You know, listen, we're so focused, you guys, on the outcome of this, but I do think about the significance of more diversity, more of an inclusive Congress, and what that will mean, you know, Kevin, in terms of policies going forward. Well, yeah, and I, and I think, you know, it's, it's fascinating to just look as we look into 2022, because in my neck of the woods, they're already talking about that. And AOC mm-hmm. just put out a series of tweets this afternoon where she's critical of the centrist Democrats who have been critical of the left wing progressives in terms of why Democrats didn't have a better showing in the House. It's all inside baseball. But for me, it's what I live for, Carol. I know it keeps I you can't going. Help it. it really that, does. That and uh, the Eagles and, and coffee. Philly cheesesteaks and coffee. <laughs> all right. Thanks. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. TGIF, everyone. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser with Kevin Cirilli, Bloomberg News Chief Washington Correspondent of Bloomberg Radio and TV, host of Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. June Grasso with us, legal analyst and host of Bloomberg Law on Bloomberg Radio every evening. And joining our conversation is Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration. He's now Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Chris, by the way, was also Executive Director of then-President-elect Barack Obama's 2008 transition team. He joins us on the phone from Charlottesville, Virginia. Chris, I'm so great to have you here with us because you are someone who understands our political world in depth, having worked in every branch of the U.S. government. So, um, so great to have you here with our team. I want to talk about politics, want to talk about the election, but first, an issue that's always important and usually in an election year is the labor market and the employment picture. We got some news today. How do you see the economy and labor recovery? It's it's the one that whoever sits in the White House come January is going to be dealing with. Well, and that's exactly right. And so, you know, this month's report was a generally positive one. Uh, 638,000 jobs created. But I think there's a lot of caveats to this. I mean, there's a, a fair number of people, about 7 million, who are working uh, part-time, even though they want to work full-time. The number of people who are um, long-term unemployed is continuing to grow. And, and all of this is happening at a time when, um, you know, we know that unemployment insurance enhanced UI is going to expire at the end of December, and we don't have really that much stimulus left in the economy at this point. So, again, I, you know, a positive number, but we're still in a pretty big hole, about a 10 million uh, job hole uh, from where we were before the pandemic. Yeah, still a big hole. All right, so the election. Since you understand this process from, you know, behind the curtain, something that we don't all get to see, what do you think is going on in each camp, the Biden camp and the Trump camp right now? Well, I think in the Biden camp right now, um, I I think they're just going to continue to let the votes uh, play out. Um, You know, and I think you saw a pretty stark contrast yesterday in the messages um, when the vice president uh, came out and you know, I think gave a pretty poignant statement about how democracy is sometimes messy, but it requires us to be patient, uh, you know, expressing confidence, but uh, really just, you know, asking that all the votes be counted. Um, the president took a much different approach yesterday. Um, I think the, the issue fundamentally is um, how long the president is going to continue this. Um, you know, at this point, he's going to continue these legal challenges. The votes are going to continue being counted. There's really no proof at all about voter fraud um, and whether, you know, look, if this goes through the weekend, that's fine. But at a certain point, uh, we do need to move on to the peaceful transfer of power, assuming the vote total goes the way it does. 
And I think if this continues to play out, I think that really should concern all Americans about, you know, what the continuity of government will look like come January 20th. That President Trump has told some people that he has no plans to concede, even if his path to victory is blocked. So where does that leave a peaceful transition of power? Well, look, I, I think it's problematic. Um, but I think if there's one uh, person who could probably overcome this, it's Joe Biden. You know, for better or worse, uh, you know, he has spent, um, you know, 40, as we, we've been always reminded, 47 years in Washington. Uh, but during 47 years, he understands how government works. You know, no one's going to have to write a memo for him about the National Security Council. And he is surrounded by a lot of people that have spent time in government. Uh, so I think he can overcome the obstacles. But it's certainly not ideal. And I just know from the experience I had in 2008 running Obama's transition, we really worked hand in glove with the outgoing Bush administration. And that was not only important for the early success of our administration, but really to try to ensure that, you know, any national security, any homeland security threats uh, were assessed and addressed. Chris, it's Kevin's really here. You know, I, I, can we just take off the... Uh the the politics cap for for a second and yeah. just speak to us as a as a manager a manager right because as you mentioned I, I think folks it's it's actually one of the great mysteries I think uh, in in American politics folks don't really understand how the transition process works there's a lot of job to fill and in yeah. a very short mm-hmm. window of time and a lot of competing <laughs> interests to yeah. get on to to a various administration and a campaign. So just talk to us literally about the binders and, and the, the resumes and the security clearances, because it really is fascinating stuff. Yeah, no, this is incredible. I mean, you would not run, you know, Bloomberg Radio this way. You wouldn't run any company this way. Where <laughs> one day, the entire senior leadership just walks out, and then a whole new group of people walk in. You know, there are 4,000 political appointees, more or less, wow. that sit on top of the federal government. 4,000! Um, 4,000 4, job openings. It's amazing. It's yeah, it really is. So, so 4,000 people walk out at noon on January 20th, and not 4,000 walk in, let's say several hundred walk in, because it takes time to process people. And the fact that we pull this off in this country every four or eight years is really a testament to this broader concept of a peaceful transfer of power, even between outgoing and incoming administrations that have fought a really hard-pitched battle uh, we've done it through war. We've done it through recession. And so I am hoping, notwithstanding the initial press accounts that are coming out of the White House, that they do finally, again, assuming uh, President Trump loses, that he agrees to follow this tradition. Because, as I said, it's, it's taking control of, um, you know, 100 federal agencies, uh, national security, homeland security. Um, there's a lot of things that have to happen, and it has to happen seamlessly because we know this is a period of time when our country is vulnerable um, to, to you know, attempts to disrupt us from the outside. I want to get back to Chris Liu. He is joining Kevin Cirilli and June Grasso and me. He's former Deputy Secretary of Labor under Barack Obama, now Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. He was also Executive Director of then-President-elect Barack Obama's 2008 transition team. He's on the phone in Virginia. Hey, Chris, if we can just kind of continue with that idea of transition, since you understand <laughs> what's involved. As we said, massive. We're talking about, you know, thousands of people who basically walk out, a few come in right away. How does COVID complicate it? 
possibly, and what are your expectations about this transition? I mean, and I do wonder, since Joe Biden is kind of an ultimate insider to some extent as well, does that make the process, um, are we more confident about what happens? Well, I, I think that's right. And I, I, again, I'll go back to the 2008 example, which is, you know, at that period of time, we were in a, you know, financial, the financial markets were spiraling at that point. But there was a level of cooperation between the outgoing team and Hank Paulson and the incoming team and Tim Geithner. And it's going to require that same level of cooperation between outgoing and incoming administrations now. I mean, to be clear, there's only one president at a time. But understand that the policies that this administration is taking, in order for them to be successful, will have to be continued by the next one. So at least being read into what they're thinking about, not only in terms of economic plans, but really in terms of dealing with COVID, you know, it would be a disservice for the Trump team not to read the Biden team into, let's say, Operation Warp Speed on vaccine development. Mm. Um, The Biden people should understand what the plans are for development, um, uh, production, distribution, so that it's a seamless transition um, in in the national interest. And And this is, I think, one of those times where, you know, both sides have to put aside their differences and work uh, on behalf of the common good. Well, what happens when the administration coming in has a totally different perspective on something like COVID? So you have Biden, you're expected to have a different kind of COVID plan, a different kind. And we even have President Trump saying in one of his rallies that he might fire Dr. Fauci and then Biden saying, well, I'll hire him back. So when there's not that connect between the two plans, when it's sort of like apples and oranges, then what happens? Well, I I think that's exactly right. And I do think regardless of the differences, we need to get a vaccine developed as fast as possible. So I think there's common ground on that. I think one of the sticking points is, you know, one of the issues that was in the economic stimulus negotiations, which is additional money for testing, which is something that Democrats have been pushing for. And that's, I think, critical to the Biden plan. We need widespread available testing um, so that we can safely open schools. We can identify where there are outbreaks and close uh, parts of the uh, parts of the economy back down very quickly and then reopen it again. Um, so I think that is going to be a sticking point. But obviously, given where the politics right now post-election are, it's hard to imagine a stimulus in the order of you know, $2.2 trillion, which is what Democrats have been pushing. So my guess is that there will be some minimal stimulus, probably closer to what uh, Mitch McConnell wants. Um, and then I sort of suspect after January 20th, uh, Senate Republicans will be shifting back to deficit reduction again. Um, and I think that's going to be problematic both from, you know, providing the continued economic aid right. uh, as well as the resources to fight COVID. Okay, so Tom Keen always tells me, Kev, don't go into too much of the hypotheticals, but I got to I gotta rip up the script and I got to do the hypothetical yeah. thing. Okay, so let's just say, hypothetically, just between us, will someone like a Lael Bernard, I don't know, have a good transitional conversation with someone like Secretary Mnuchin? Well, I think, I think in that instance, I think, you know, we have, we have seen how Secretary Mnuchin has been able to form alliances across the aisle. So I think that's probably a pretty good example where there would be cooperation. I think the broader issue... The markets are like that. (laughs) But the broader issue is in terms of, you know, Senate confirmations. Will Mitch McConnell, if he controls the Senate, uh, just, you know, allow these nominees to go through? Or will he have his own uh, criteria of what's an acceptable cabinet member or not? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that cabinet nominations 
you know, and confirmations were fairly bipartisan with rare examples. Um, in recent years, they've become increasingly more partisan. You know, on the other hand, we've seen, you know, what the Trump administration has done, where if they can't get people confirmed, they just use acting officials. So, um, you know, so we, <laughs> there are we so could, many we acting could, we, officials. Right. We could go back down that road again if, if, if uh, the Senate doesn't confirm people. Well, and I do just about a minute left here, Chris. I mean, I, I think that begs the question of how many people, senior officials, you know, the State Department, you know, how many do you perceive will separate from President Trump, especially in the transition process, to make sure that it is smooth in your estimation? And just got about 45 seconds or so. You mean the career officials or the political officials? Well, I mean... No, I mean like the political officials and, and his inner cabinet. Oh. Like, well, that will make will help with the transition. Yeah, I, look, I I think the message really gets set from the top. And if this is a president who says, "Look, I want my people to cooperate," I think that cooperation will happen. But mm. um, I think it is something to be concerned about, given I think the recent rhetoric as well as the longer term history of uh, this current president. Well, definitely interesting and really some incredible insight, Chris, when it comes to transitioning. Um, I know you know it firsthand. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Chris Liu, he's former Deputy Secretary of Labor under Barack Obama, Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. And as we mentioned, he was Executive Director of uh, President uh, Barack Obama's uh, transition team back in 08. It's going to be interesting, um, Kevin and June. I feel like this whole process, you know, until we get through January <laughs> and a new president or a you know, existing president. Yeah, but it's uh, Friday. But, and, <laughs> but it's it, also, the Trump campaign, you know, the Trump leadership is apparently trying to put a lot of regulations through now yeah. to enforce some of the policies that Joe Biden is probably not going to want to enforce. Keeps us busy. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We know uh, Vice President Joe Biden, Joe Biden, excuse me, won the state of Virginia with about 54% of the vote compared with 46% for President Trump. That's according to AP numbers. We also know that this was a race, a campaign, a vote, and counting of that vote where there was a constant conversation over misinformation. We know our next guest has some thoughts on that. He is the Congressman Denver Riggleman from the state of Virginia representing the 5th District. He is among the two House Republicans Republicans leaving next month. He's also got an interesting book out. It is called Bigfoot. It's complicated, and it's a book that goes after conspiracy theories such as QAnon. Congressman Riggleman, it is great to have you here with our team. And I know Kevin was talking a lot about on our planning call that, you know, we really do wonder about, right, Kevin, you know, whether or not the president, President Trump, has any chances here. Yeah, I mean, Congressman, what's your read on that situation? Do you think the president's legal strategy has a shot? I think any time you see votes that close, you should have a legal strategy for recounts. And you got the automatic triggers in each state. I think the worry I always have is that you can absolutely, and, and I can say is you can absolutely go after a legal strategy without automatically declaring some sort of nefarious activity that could take things away and actually riling up certain portions of the population. I think you saw that with the, with the couple people down in Philadelphia outside the convention center that were caught with QAnon stickers. Um, on their vehicle, and it was a Hummer, right? And, you know, I'm following that very closely right now with certain individuals, and, you know, I do have access to information, plus my intelligence background, Kevin, and and you guys, but I think a lot of it comes down to is that you can have a legal strategy. I just think hyperbole um, or demonization right off the bat is not a good way to go, especially with the emotions running so high in the electorate. Well, you tweeted out last night, uh, count every vote, yes, but stop the Bravo Sierra 
That's what he tweeted because mm-hmm. you, you didn't want to say the word. I get it, Mr. President, and respect <laughs> the democratic process that makes America great. Okay, you just had a call with the Republican House caucus members. What did they say? Are they all on the same page or are they all saying stop the Bravo Sierra? I think there's almost this mix. Um, and, and, you know, we keep those very private, but I can tell you this. There's a lot of excitement on the Republican side about it. And I think, you know, and I know Kevin McCarthy well, and I know many of those well, and many of those seats are fantastic individuals. Um, but there's some that are extreme, and I would say it's also on the left. So there was a lot of excitement and talk specifically about the House seats. When it came to the presidential race, it was really uh, sort of a, a vanilla legal strategy that they still think they got the votes out there on the counts. And they were actually talking about making sure the count happened with the veteran ballots that were coming in because they thought that could change some things. So very excited about the count of ballots still coming in legally. And that's, you know, it's just interesting, Kevin. I don't know if there's, a, you know, a huge, you know, sort of a difference in the way that this thing is going. But there's a lot of excitement on the House side where they think the president really pushed people up to get that. But on the other hand, um, there's still this thing looking at votes from veterans. And I would I would say, and I know that I've angered both sides, but if we're talking about counting more votes, I think we allow every legal vote to be counted mm-hmm. without saying things that can really start a, a conflagration out there. What I also wonder is, because from the president's statements, you can't tell what kind of lawsuits he's looking toward in the future. Past then the ones that we've seen so far have been relating to very small amounts of ballots in the in the scale of things. Is there anyone that you know planning the strategy of, you know, how to approach these post-election lawsuits? I I think the the, the thing I've, I've seen them concentrating on really and you know I've been following this pretty closely is, you know, illegal ballots, say people that have died, people that weren't in the state. But it, it really is sort of ad hoc and where they're putting these attorneys right now. And there's not really there was no sense in the conference call how they're going to go about that legal strategy. Um, and, and that is really concerning to me. I, I, again, I think you can go through a legal strategy. I just I just don't think. And, and Kevin, you referred to that tweet. Right. And um, you just can't go out there and say, I won. This is an illegal election. That's that's just false. And it's dangerous. And but I think also when you look at some of the people doing this, guys, the Pennsylvania legislature, the one who had this count go after the election, it was. Kemp down in Georgia is a Republican. There's Republicans everywhere saying this is a fair process. And I think that's why right. you see this sort of dissimilar attitude. It's ironic. And, and again, you can't force vote counts in Arizona and Nevada and say we got to stop them in Pennsylvania right. and Georgia. That's just that doesn't make sense to me. And, and, and you're going to stay with us, uh, Congressman Denver Riggleman, uh, Republican from Virginia, oftentimes thought of as a potential gubernatorial candidate in the state of Virginia. But uh, you also own a distillery. Is that what, what are you doing right now? You must be busy, man. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Hey, well, uh, we have never, by the way, you know, since COVID, um, it got bad at first. We've never been busier. Oh. Um, we, we are getting 2,000 people sometimes on Saturdays coming through here. Wow. Right? Because, you know, liquor is the great lubricant of the masses. And, you know, and then, of course. <laughs> then the Purell <laughs> angle well, and the well, hand sanitizer. Right? Hey, one thing I wanted to ask you, we'll get back to the distillery, I promise, in just a moment. But one thing, because you really do look at misinformation, you think about it. And I was reading something, I think you were quoted in USA Today, and you said. Um, and this was at the prospect of a QAnon candidate going to Capitol Hill. We've got one going. And you said, when does it go from harmless fun into weaponizing insanity? Disinformation or misinformation can become the bedrock of somebody's belief systems. If that happens, we're in danger, real danger as a republic. So uh, what do you make of a QAnon candidate in Congress? And more than one. I don't and know more than one. More than one, right? And 
other people professed, you know, certain portions of it, you know, they believe in. And I think this is what scares the heck out of people is that when does that, when does it come, when does a cult become weaponized into something that could be terror? And QAnon can certainly be called a cult. Instead of a physical prophet, you have a digital prophet. And they sort of do the same things, right? It's about money. It's about power. It's, and sometimes about sex, if you think about it. And, you know, and, and really it's, and, and it's based, QAnon has a basis of anti-Semitism that's rampant throughout the QAnon uh, mythology. And if you look at even Bigfoot, that's what's so, uh, so I think timely about the book. I wrote it over 14 years. Is that is a belief systems that are, could be myth, myth based. But sometimes people get angry, and that is also about the grift. It's about money. It's about power. It's about having other people come to you to give you something, having knowledge nobody else has. And what you just saw in Philadelphia, when you have people with QAnon stickers going to the Philadelphia Convention Center Center saying they're going to straighten things out, that's what happens. And that's, that's exactly, you know, and I'm not trying to say that um, my intelligence analyst background really allows me to see some things differently based on counterterrorism. And you see radical, radicalization in language. And the language I've seen does, means that I am not surprised at all about what happened in Philly. And we, have got to, we have got to stop this now. This is here now. It's not something we put in a dark corner. We've got to stop it now. I'm wondering what you think about the social media platforms trying to crack down on this and whether that has had any impact or any ability to stop this. It's actually going to exacerbate it. So when you look at, you know, Twitter or Facebook and you look at these other modes of communication, you know, the digital streams and shows for media, even the last two decades, as you know, is exponential. So what do they do? They go to BitChute. They go to Parler. They go to Rumble. Right. You, you know, you, you start putting up, you know, little videos on your website. Right. You start doing things where you're directing people to that website using different types of language, coded language or memes. And you push people this way and that way. QAnon started out as a farce um, in a way that was sort of dangerous and, and also I think something that might have been sort of laid out for everybody to see in a quick way back in 2017. But grifters and people that are nefarious, and a lot of it had to do with money, um, but also with trying to, to swing the electorate, um, they got a hold of it. And now you got the chans, you got image boards, right? You got Aikun, you got all of these different places where communication can happen with trip codes, with hashtags. And that's the thing, right? That's what we're against, and that's why I've been warning people that you think you think you're going to, you know, stop one digital stream. A social contagion finds different avenues of spread, and and again, I'm I'm warning people, and I'm going after all of them. Yeah, and you were uh, recently the co-sponsor of a resolution in the House condemning the far right conspiracy uh, that fosters anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Semitism, and false claims uh, that Democrats and liberal Hollywood uh, are running. Uh, some type of satanic pedophile ring, that whole far right con- conspiracy. You condemn that, uh, and we should note that as well. Uh, on Meet the Press, you were asked about this, and I want to go broad here because you're such a, a fascinating, fascinating political uh, for politician. I mean, and uh, you were on Meet the Press, I believe, on Sunday, and your local newspapers picked it up, and, and the headline in the Virginia Mercury. Is Denver Riggleman still a Republican? He's not sure. And and you were, at, I mean, first of all, are you still a Republican? And secondly, talk to me about your frustration with the two-party system. Oh, goodness. I mean, I thought I was a constitutional Republican. And, you know, talking to Chuck Todd, I've talked to a lot of people about this now. And I did say, you know, and people have used this. I don't feel like I left the party. The party left me. 
But what I thought, you know, is sort of a liberty-minded individual that, you know, you know why I'm gone, Kevin. This is no secret, right? Yeah. I officiated a same-sex wedding and calls and dropped a nuke that I didn't think that I dropped, you know, on the local committee parties out here who had a tough time with it. And and I just wouldn't back down because I thought republicanism should stand for people should live the way they want to live. We should stay out of people's pocketbooks, out of their bedroom, and out of their business. However, it's not how it is. And as I see this happening, it's almost as if this duopoly, the fringes are controlling the sort of corporate structure of republicanism and, and Democrat sort of party politics. But really, it's about money. It's about the grift. And it's about ideologies taking over that hurt the people you're supposed to represent. And I do think you're going to see a new movement out of this. And I want to organize that somehow. I don't know, right? Everybody has said, well, there's going to be a third. Well, there's there's definitely a lot of parties. There's libertarian. There's green. There's these alliance parties, whatever. I don't think it needs to be a party. It almost needs to be a movement, an organization, almost like a public trust of people. It's And I, I probably can't curse on this, but I can say this, right? No, you can't. You <laughs> can't. Don't get me in trouble. I'm just guest hosting. No, Go not, ahead. Not. Kevin's but, not going to get in trouble. It's our producer. So please take but, care of our producer, I use, Paul. I can, use Bravo, I can use Bravo Sierra, right? Um, so right. So you almost need a, a band of Bravo Sierra uh, detecting superheroes. And I think those are the people, if I could say, you know, you need... You need these type of individuals that aren't afraid to say how it is. And that's All right, are you going to run state, for right? governor? You know, it's, if I get angry enough, I will, and I'm starting to get really angry. How does that okay. suit you, Kevin? And, you know, right. and, um, you know, and, but the thing so is, if I'm, I'm sitting at your silverback distillery sure. and we're sitting down having a drink, are you going to run for governor? <laughs> if we're having a drink, you know, that's a, that's a conversation. First of all, if my <laughs> wife comes in, she's probably going to throat punch somebody. She could join us. No, she can join us. But oh, <laughs> well, she's the master distiller. She knows all of this, right? She's the one who does it all. And I tell you, this is a pretty weird conversation. You know, talking about Bigfoot liquor and QAnon is a pretty hairy subject, you know. Wait, Well, speaking we're of Bigfoot, I see you sidestepping Friday. the question of are you going to run for governor? <laughs> well, actually, I sort of want to. The issue that I want to run for governor, the issue that I have is that with my family and how long I've been gone, not only in the military, the being a CEO, then going to work mm. at the Pentagon as a senior consultant for electronic warfare and countermeasures, then two years in Congress, I'm 50, and my wife's like, honey, you know, I was supposed to see you when we got married at 19. It's been 31 years. <laughs> at what point yeah. are you going to be home? And uh, my kids, you know, I got two brand new grandkids, and, um, you know, I, they were born two weeks apart, and, I, and I'm just telling you guys, there's a beauty to anonymity, and there's a beauty for me going after bad guys again. You know, my whole life has been hunting terrorists and making whiskey, and I'm good at both of those. And, you know, and, and I right. really love the intelligence work. It's what I love to do, and if I can serve in that capacity, I would rather do that than run for office ever again. But I'm so angry right now wait, about wait, 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 people wait. running. So one word answer, no or yes, going to run? Huh? A mess. Maybe oh my God. Ah, that wasn't the you one know. word we Cheers. were looking for. Yes, yes, definitely. Cheers on this Friday. Congressman Denver Riggleman, thank you so much. State of Virginia, Republican. Check out his book, Bigfoot. It's complicated, as is the world. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.